The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Metal Podcast, home of all things hard rock and heavy metal. I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. Now, let's get things started with the Talking Metal theme song, written by Rob Halford, Metal Mike, and Roy Z. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Talking Metal. Today's guest is Bob Nelbandian. He's going to tell us all about his great new film, Inside Metal. It's the the second edition, I guess I'd call it, of the Inside Metal series. And it's all about the early L.A. scene. So stay tuned for that. Please keep using those Amazon links on TalkingMetal.com. Call us, leave us a message on our hotline. That number is... 973-757-1917. Again, 973-757-1917. Please leave us a review on iTunes. A positive one is preferred. And use the PayPal tab on our site to make a donation. We're currently sold out of uh, T-shirts. Hopefully we'll be getting those back in real soon. Follow me on talking or on Twitter at Talking Metal and at Striegel. Follow Talking Metal's Instagram page. I'm on Snapchat at Captain T Head is the name. That's C A P T A I N T E A H E A D. And uh, yeah, again, use those Amazon links. I appreciate that. Guys, check out the site. It's talkingmetal.com. All right, we got Mitch LaFon's show up there. This show, of course, Talking Rock and Metal Raps, all on the Talking Metal website, talkingmetal.com. Thanks, guys. Here is a little Can You Deliver by Armored Saint. And we'll end today's show with the song Hold On to 18 by Black and Blue. That's what you'll hear after my long discussion with the great Bob Nelbandian. Here we go. Can you deliver? Come on, look at you. Laying out the question. Do you know what love means? A person that 
Hey guys, there is a great new movie out that I highly recommend you check out, Inside Metal. It's a documentary, The L.A. Metal Scene Explodes 2, and we have the the mastermind behind this film with us here on the show today, Bob Nelbandian. How are you, Bob? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah, welcome back to the show. I, you know, last time you were on, I got a lot of great comments, so I'm I'm glad you're back, and I'm glad we can talk specifically about the the L.A. metal scene, which you know, as a kid, I, I went to high school in the Chicago suburbs, and you know, like so many people in in the '80s, loved heavy metal and learned to play guitar, and and it, you know, I never made it there, but because my parents basically stopped me, but you know, everyone in our little band in high school were like. Well, when we graduate high school, we have to go to L.A. We have to get there because that's where it's happening. And, and you know, this documentary that you put together really takes me back to that time because it absolutely, without a question, is, is where it, it happened. Um, so first off, you did part one of this, I guess I would call it, in, Inside Metal. Um, and we spoke to you back when that came out. I don't know what that was, a, a year ago or, or so. And, and now this era specifically what time frame are we talking about here this was would be roughly uh 1982 to 1986 so it basically takes off where the pioneers of of la uh, metal which was the first title uh pioneers of la hard rock and metal it basically takes off where that left off and um you know we call it the la metal scene explodes because this is truly when the the original L.A. metal scene um, exploded. I mean, of course, you had specific bands like Van Halen in the 70s and whatever, but the big explosion that everyone remembers was, you know, of course, when Motley Crue and Quiet Riot and all these bands, Rat, Armored Saint, Black and Blue, they were all getting signed by major labels, Wasp, of course, Rough Cut, Malice, Warrior, I could go on and on, you know, it was a big surge. And, you know, it was the beginning of MTV. It was... A lot of hype, you know, the Us Vessel came around in, in, during that time in, in, in 83. So there was a lot of hype surrounding, you know, not just uh, uh, metal, but hard rock and particularly in, in the Los Angeles area. Yeah. And, and what, you, you know, what you mentioned there was so many big things just kind of coming together, like, you know, MTV, Us Festival. All, it was like just just the moment in time where all these kind of things kind of contributed to this this la metal scene and just blew it up yeah yeah it was perfect timing really with 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 mtv and everything else and i think the live feel i I think really to the new wave of british heavy metal all that was going on overseas with you know maiden saxon motorhead that was making its way to the shores of, of of la and you know there were a lot of real heavy kind of more european influence la bands around that time but of course people always think of la as the glam bands which really i mean you had you know motley Crue and rat but even those bands were a bit heavier when they started and when they were playing the clubs Steeler and bands like that and i think most most people kind of remember the second wave which was like you know the poison slaughter faster pussycat warrant that kind of thing but You know, and initially it was pretty underground. It was very underground. I mean, the bands really busted their ass, and uh, it was a working class metal. Um, you know, you did have some bands that kind of obviously glammed it up. You know, they 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 took after more the the New York Dolls in the early seventies. 
uh, kind of glam scene. Maybe right, as far as their look goes, right? Yeah, exactly. And and sounded a little bit, you know, they, they were a little, I mean, you know, you, you listen to the first Motley Crue album, that's very poppy. And, you know, certainly uh, Rat and other bands had, had that pop element. But, you know, we also wanted to concentrate on a lot of the bands. You know, Warrior, which was my uh, co-producer, Joe Floyd. And uh, I, I know you played uh, songs off the Fighting for the Earth album on, oh, yeah. on top. Metal, yeah. a great album underground but they had a huge buzz malice was another band that were very european very judas priest influence and of course you know metallica were still in la at that time megadeth and you know we don't get into slayer into this because we we have a separate one coming out next called the rise of la thrash cool. metal where we concentrate more on, on the thrash scene which we, we could talk about in a bit but yeah this was really a, a, a situation where the scene where the la metal scene was just thriving and the club scene even before they were getting the radio support and, you know, before Rad and Motley released their their debut or, or independent EPs or albums, they were selling out, you know, the, the Troubadour and even the Country Club and and all these venues. And it was just this this real underground metal surge. And it, it was a great time, Mark. It was yeah. really something yeah. special. Well, I want to talk to you more about that time. But before we do, let's just let's just talk about the production of this. First off, obviously, dozens and dozens of great interviews. But I, I have to say, I really enjoyed the first one, the first Inside Metal one. But I do enjoy this one more. And it's not only because I relate more to the, the bands. I think it's more my era of stuff. But I, I don't know. I felt like the flow of, the, of it kind of – it, the production, the flow, the editing – is really really tight and and well done and i love how you how you hit a topic and you hear from so many different people on the one topic then it moves to the next topic uh what i'm saying is it's really well put together who who edited it with you well uh yeah i gotta give major props to Rico lari he was the uh the actual main editor uh you know carl ed did the initial edits carl alvarez and he kind of like helped sequence it but you know as far as adding in all the music do getting all the rough edges out and, and getting the flow of it and adding in the narration that John Bush did and editing everything together and all the photos and the videos and all that stuff. That was a uh, Rico Lari and he did a fantastic job. And yeah. he's, uh, um, you know, we were really happy to use him uh, on the first one. We used uh, actually two editors, uh, Carl, uh, well, Carl helped on that as well, but we used uh, uh, Robert Gaston and, and a uh, Curtis uh, Don Vito, who's also uh, the singer of the band Snoo. So I do, want to give them credit for the first one and uh but yeah you know uh the good thing about rico i mean on the first one and you know i'm I'm not putting blame on anyone because myself too we were all amateurs when we started We, we i didn't know about filmmaking and joe floyd who i initially started the project with he didn't know about you know, filming or anything. He was an audio producer. He produced a lot of uh, st- uh, stuff at a sound, uh, uh, you know, uh, SoundCloud Studios with, uh, uh, you know, he did a lot of the Jakey Lee stuff and a lot of a lot of bands, uh, uh, L.A. bands. So uh, he was familiar with that end, but not really the visual. So we, we all kind of came into it. So, yeah, I, I do agree with you. The first one. There was a lot of experimentation because we were so new to this and the sequencing and, you know, the flow wasn't quite right on certain things. I think on the second one, you know, especially Carl and I, because he was the one that really helped me sequence it. And he's the one that really had that eye for it. Um, You know, uh, you know, uh, it, it was it was just a great team for everyone to put together. And I think the relationship with Carl and I really built so much better on this this second one that we kind of both 
saw where you know uh, you know how, where to go about with with this movie you know the mistakes we made on the first one and and the great thing about rico is he he's a pro editor you know a lot of stuff i wasn't familiar with like um uh, qc you know quality control right. and sure i real yeah when you know editing uh you know it's especially to get on uh, even itunes and a lot of the digital outlets you know, they sent back a QC, uh, QC sheet with all these things that needed to be fixed if we were going to go on it, you know, and and Warren, the executive producer, was like pulling his hair out. And, you know, so, uh, you know, the first one, we did have a lot of uh, issues and, and it was, you know, because we were all kind of amateurs and even, you know, Joe filming and everything. There were certain edits that weren't covered up good enough for or whatever, so a couple sound sound bites that. So you know, we, we kind of learned from that, and and it was great with Rico because he's very very familiar with with QC. He's he's edited a lot of major pictures. So yeah, I agree. The editing is 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 much sharper, and I think it's a lot cleaner. Yeah, and there's and some it, it, great it storytelling. I mean, it's it, you, the, there's a real story that's that's told here. Again, guys, we're talking about Inside Metal. The LA metal scene explodes too. And it's out on DVD. Where, if somebody wanted to buy it on DVD, where would they go, Bob? Well, the uh, we we got it actually as a discount at the uh, MetalRockFilms.com website. That's the okay. uh, the uh, company that put it out. Warren Croyle, as as I mentioned, the uh, executive producer and the head of Metal Rock. Uh, he's actually got a uh, sale if you buy the two volumes. It, again, this is kind of confusing. People think this is the third movie or fourth movie because it's two volumes of each DVD. So the pioneers right. was a two DVD set sold separately. And, and so is this one. Um, but, uh, yeah, you could get it through metal rock films. And if you buy the DVDs, Warren's going to also throw in, uh, another uh, DVD from another great, uh, uh, director and producer, uh, movie called metal Messiah. I don't know if he sent that one to you as he well. Did. I didn't have a chance yet to watch that, but he did. It's a it. fun movie. It's like, it's just like a total rock and roll spoof, kind of like a, you know, a spinal tap meets, uh, you know, the stone age or something, you know, right. but, uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, you could write, go, go through uh, metalrockfilms.com. Although he, he is only accepting PayPal through that. Otherwise the, the, the best and most popular one, of course, Amazon, yeah. they've got both DVDs and, and if they do, if it says they're out of stock, they get it in stock within the next couple of days. So don't let that deter you from, uh, ordering it through Amazon. And a lot of the local record stores, um, I, I've noticed have carried, carry it too, cool. um, which is great. And we really urge people to go out to the record stores and, and support the local record stores. So, and then digitally, you know, it's on uh, Amazon prime. That's where I watched but, it. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's uh, really cool uh, to watch on that and a very great uh, outlet, uh, which a lot of people have, of course it's on iTunes as well. I believe part two, there was uh, some kind of confusion. Part two is coming out on iTunes, I believe in December, okay. uh, they kind of separated that there. And it's also on Google Play. And uh, as I said, it's going to be going to cable pay-per-view on several of the uh, uh, digital channels. So you okay, can check cool. guide to see. And that should be going next month as well. Cool. Well, let's talk about some of the more the, – I don't want to give all the stories away. I don't want to give away everything that happens in the the the, uh, the documentary. But a few topics I did want to hit upon. Uh, number one – I thought it was really interesting because when you hear about L.A. metal, uh, you you know, you think of the rats, the, you know, the Motley Crue and Poison and, you know, Leather Wolf and all, all these bands like that. But a lot of people don't think of 
Ozzy Osbourne as part of the L.A. metal scene. You know, a guy from Birmingham, England, you know, Sabbath. But he really was a part of, of the L.A. metal scene and in a lot of ways helped it blossom. And, and you could do an excellent job of painting that story in the documentary. Can you talk a little bit about how Ozzy was directly involved with the L.A. metal scene? Yeah, um, well, I'm glad you bring that up because a lot of people say, "Oh, you have Ozzy. Ozzy's not from LA. He's from England." It's like, dude, I know that. <laughs> but you know, obviously, uh, when when Blizzard of Oz came out, they based themselves in England. The original band, everyone knows, uh, you know, uh, Randy Rhodes, of course, was in the original Quiet Riot, and we cover them extensively in the Pioneers of LA Hard Rock and Metal. And they based themselves, you know, with Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake uh, here in LA. And since then. Ozzy always got all his uh, musicians from the L.A. area or San Diego, like Jakey Lee and, you know, um, uh, all the uh, musicians pretty much that followed from Mike Inez to uh, uh, Phil Susan. And, and, you know, they were pretty much, you know, Ozzy really was pretty much an L.A. band, um, you know, from even going back to Rudy Sarzo, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I forgot Rudy Sarzo, of course, and uh, Tommy Aldridge, although uh, I don't think I I don't think Tommy was from L.A., but, uh, you know, he always got uh, U.S. uh, uh, players. And, of course, after Dio's first lineup, he got a lot of, uh, uh, you know, American players as well. He was real tight with rough cut. So L.A., as as I think David Ellison kind of says, L.A. really was the hub of, uh, you know, the epicenter of the the metal scene. Um, Ingve, obviously, we all know he's from Sweden. He started out with the L.A. band Steeler when he came when he was 19. So Ingve really broke in Los Angeles. Angeles. And, um, you know, I think that's important for people to know. So many bands, you know, even Lemmy, he based himself in the early 80s, you know, right behind the rainbow, as everyone knows. And he yeah. was a big fixture of the L.A. scene, although, you know, obviously everyone knows Motorhead is the British metal band. But so many bands kind of based themselves in L.A. and they were part of the scene. And that's really what we we talk about, you know, Um you know, and then of course you got so many bands that that latter came over from the Poisons to everyone else, even Steeler. They came over from Nashville, so right. you know a lot of bands came out to L.A. and became L.A. bands and a part of the scene. And that's really, really what we wanted to get out of this. Yeah, and and so you had you had some of the more like established rock stars coming there to to form bands, pull musicians, guys like Ozzy Osbourne and and Ronnie James Dio. But then, like you just mentioned, you had this this uh, influx, I guess would be the word, of, of bands from all over the country just f- literally flocking there. And one thing you touch upon in the movie is just the culture shock that these bands would have. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what it was like for a band coming from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or you know Alaska, for that matter, to end up in Hollywood in like 1984? Yeah, well, I I think a lot of the bands kind of describe it good. You mentioned Alaska, the band Pandemonium. Uh, They came from Alaska, and, you know, they talk about how it was just a major culture shock for them coming from a small town in in Alaska, and they built themselves up really quickly. Um, They were, again, one of those bands that were selling out the country club and the troubadour. If, If you're talking 81, 82, they were probably one of the biggest drawing 
L.A. bands. Um, and then, of course, you had all the neighboring cities, uh, Orange County, uh, Leatherwolf were huge in Orange County. And then they built up in, in L.A. You know, they were out headlining the, the country club and they were drawing the same amount of people as, you know, the, the Poisons and all these other bands that started. Yet they were kind of forgotten about. So, um, yeah, so many of these bands did come from from all over. As I mentioned, Steeler, they came uh, from Nashville, uh, you know, and based themselves rather quickly in, in L.A. And, of course, Rat and Warrior. And uh, there was a band called Sarge. They came up from uh, uh, the, the San Diego area. So everyone kind of knew L.A. was the place even before MTV hit big because we're talking this is before there was a real scene. I mean, people remember from Van Halen and people always read about um, the L.A. clubs and the whiskey. And and that was always even, you know, going back to the 60s and 70s, that was the place where most artists broke. And, you know, the Doors and all these bands would, you know, Zeppelin and, and Alice Cooper, they would play the whiskey and all these clubs. So I think people knew that and uh, people knew that there was a scene and a vibe on the strip with the rainbow and the whiskey and Gazzari's back in the day. And of course the Roxy, all those clubs are booming and the strip was just crazy. And, you know, by 81, the Starwood had closed. So this was like the Troubadour kind of took over. The Troubadour was a major metal Mecca, you know, Wasp, Hellion, you know, Avatar, all these bands would be playing, uh, you know, and White Sister and Great White and Rat and all these bands, Armored Saint, they would headline maybe two nights at the Troubadour on a Friday and Saturday. And, you know, they ended up, you know, there's a story in, in the movie where they, they took out the tables because that, that Armored Saint show, the people just went nuts, you know, on, on the floor. There right. used, used to be a dinner theater, you know, and that was kind of what, and all those clubs were, the Whiskey, Roxy, they were dinner theaters. So at that point, they really realize hey this this metal scene not only musically but fan wise there's there's a, an energy here you know this isn't the kind of thing where you're going to sit down and have dinner and drinks you know you're, you're gonna you know headbang and and go crazy so uh it, it was it was kind of a whole change you know uh in that era how personally were you involved with the scene back in the day when did you first realize what was going on how much of it did you experience you know, Mark, I, I grew up in Huntington Beach, which is about an hour south in Orange County. So I used to go to a club and we talk about it quite a bit because it was really uh, people forget about Orange County really uh, gave a lot of notoriety to especially the heavier bands. Metallica did their first shows at the Woodstock and Radio City and the right. Concert Factory. Same with Slayer. You know, they that was their home turf. You know, they were always playing in Orange County and yeah. at Paul Parties in Southgate and around that area. And there was a band called August Redmoon who we interview who were who were like the Orange County Motley crew and and then you would of course have bands like um, you know, Snow and Rat and and uh, all these bands uh, Motley Crew would come out and play Radio City and, and the Woodstock and Sound Barrier, who were the fantastic all-black uh, uh, rock metal band. For, I remember one of the first shows I saw at the Radio City was Motley Crue, Rat, and Sound Barrier. Wow. And, and yeah, it was, what it year was, was that? Show. 
This was just before the Too Fast for Love album came out. They had the wow. single. I remember they were selling the single of uh, Stick, Stick to Your, to your Guns. guns yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, it was it was just great. And the places were packed. And there was a band called A La Carte, who we talked about extensively, and uh, pioneers of L.A. hard rock and metal. They were a little bit before, but they were like the first band I saw at a place called The Golden Bear, which was uh, a fantastic old school venue. And, of course, Hendrix and The Doors and all these bands used to play The Golden Bear right on PC. In, in uh, Huntington Beach, which is no longer. So, you know, I started out, that was kind of my scene. And again, Leather Wolf were another band that were in the LA era. Of course, Dante yeah. Fox, who became Great White, they were playing the Woodstock and Radio City all the time. So you didn't even have to leave Orange County, really. The right. LA scene was so booming. And they had even just great club blues artists. I remember there was an artist called Walter Trout, who's a blues guitar player who's very huge in Europe, but he would play little Huntington Beach club called Perks. And we, all the rockers would go there and cause he was just this amazing blues guitar player. And it was just a really, really cool scene. And then I kind of made my way out to the Troubadour and Armored Saint was my band in LA. I, yeah. I, I saw them from the beginning. And of course, as you know, John Bush uh, did the narration and right. yeah. he was, it was. I was very privileged to have John do it. He was very happy to do it. I, I wasn't really happy with the way I did the narration on the first movie. And I know John does professionally. He does a lot of voiceover yeah, work. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he's such a great, great, not only a great singer, but just he's got that great voice. You yeah, know, he, you did, know he did the Burger King commercials for a number yeah, of years and just absolutely. made a killing at it, from what I understand. Yeah, he's done very well. He he and his wife have a very successful casting agency. So uh, John is great. I just saw them last week. They play play. I mean, I'm in Sacramento now, and Armored Saint just played up here with Queensryche, and I cool. got to hang with them. And it was just really cool. But yeah, L.A., you know, the country club was the place. I mean, that's where all the major bands would first come over when Ingve came with with Steeler and then you would have like Merciful Fate and Accept and all these Motorhead when MSG first came over they would play so you'd get national acts because it was about you know 800 to 1000 seat venue that was a great venue so you when what if you played the country club that was like the high level of being a, a, a club band and then the next step up would be Perkins Palace which Gina Zambarelli did in Pasadena and she has some of the greatest bills you know Lost Rat and Armored Saint Great White and you know Steeler and Rad and you know uh, Stormer and uh, always killer bills at the uh, 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 Perkins Palace, and that was about a twelve to fifteen hundred seat venue. So uh, I, we would go to those all the time. They had a Thursday night heavy metal night at the Country Club, and you'd have Armored Saint playing, or um, you know, like I said, Merciful Fate or Loudness would come right. over from Japan, and you know. So I, I guess it was kind of like maybe like Lemoore's out in, in, in you know the East Coast, but it was just a really cool happening uh, place. So I, I started about. I, I wish I was there like during the Starwood because, you know, when the first movie, uh, Pioneers of L.A., Hard Rock and Metal, really focused on the Starwood because that was the club from like the, the mid-70s up through 81 and then it yeah. closed down. I uh, never quite made it there. The first shows I saw, I remember seeing um, – uh, one of the first times I went to the whiskey, I believe it might have been the first time I saw uh, Saxon on the Denim and Leather tour in 81 with a Metallica opening or 82, wow. March of 82. And that was before Metallica. Anyone that was actually Metallica's second show ever. Yeah. So um, that's a know. famous in the history books type of show. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Where they open. Yeah. So what about Gazaris? We hear a lot about Gazaris. And, and I, I've as somebody who's, you know, studied 
a lot of what went on there from a distance. It seemed, it seems like Gazzari's was kind of like this club that wasn't the hip place to play, but then suddenly <laughs> at some point, at some point it became cool. Uh, is know, that like, yeah. I know when Van Halen was playing Gazzari's, it was like the, the place that no one wanted to play. But then many years later when like rat and stuff were playing Gazzari's, it, it suddenly became kind of the hip place. Is that correct? Well, yeah, you know, Gazzari's was a weird club. I, that was one of the first venues I went to. I think I went to see uh, August Redmond when they played out in L.A. because they were buddies of mine. And I drove out there and I was like 16 and uh, went there. And there was like four different stages. And it was weird because it was a club. It wasn't a big venue. And uh, people have said, I mean, when I interviewed Stephen Piercy, he said there was 12 stages at one point. I don't remember. He might be talking about maybe little go-go stages or something. Where, right. But I, I don't remember. I've, I've heard people say there were six or eight. But I think when I was there, there was may, there at least four stages the first time I went there. So it was a real funky setup. It was it was more of like a hangout. And they, they had a lot of house bands that would be playing that, you know, Van Halen became a house, house band. band yeah. That was usually the, uh, what, what people don't realize, Mark is, you know, nowadays really playing the, the whiskey or the, the Roxy, even though uh, Golden Voice owns a Roxy now. So they're just doing pretty much national stuff, but you know, in the eighties when, and, and nineties and, and into the two thousands, when you would play these clubs, anyone could play. If you had money, it was a pay to play thing. So you'd buy the tickets and you would get on the bill. And but back then, you, you had to prove yourself. So Gazzari's was kind of the opening spot. You know, I think Stephen Pierce talks about how we followed Bill Gazzari around, begging him to get you know to play because everyone wanted to play the Sunset Strip, and the Gazzari's right. was always the, the starting point. You know, because the whiskey was still doing like national bands or. The big headliners, you know, uh, you know, even the local headliners like Smile and Quiet Riot back in the day and, you know, Snow and whatever. Uh, so you had to be a pretty big band to, to, to play those clubs. It wasn't a matter of, you know, buying tickets or anything. So Gazzari's was a starting point. So you had a lot of more amateurish bands playing at Gazzari's and uh, – you know, then the house bands, you know, Van Halen was the house band and, and a, no, a very notorious band that was uh, that really made it from being the house band at Gazzari's. And they say it kind of might have hurt their career, which it probably did, was a band called Shark Island, who were well, okay. just, just an amazing band. They used to be called the Sharks. And originally, uh, Richard Black was in a band called Pretty Poison that used to play with Van Halen all the time. I mean, they were like, he goes way back from when he was like 16 or so playing the clubs. But the Sharks, and then they turned into Shark Island, they would play every Friday and Saturday night. And I tell you, all the musicians would flock at midnight. The club would be dead. And then right before midnight, you would see all the guys in Poison. Uh, Axl Rose was there religiously. And right, wow. uh, there's, there's a point where people were saying, oh, Richard was kind of jealous talking about Axl Rose. But the fact is that is absolutely true, because every time I saw Shark Island, I saw Axl Rose in the front of the stage wow. or right by the stage, just watching as every moves. Really? So, uh, yeah, Shark Island, again, was, was, was very influential. And, you know, you had the beginnings of Rough Cut and, you know, and, and they all talk about how it was musical chairs with the bands, like particularly Rough Cut and Rat, you know, and a band called Sarge, they always switched members around and, 
you know, members flock from band to band until they kind of found the right chemistry. And, and that all kind of started happening in, in the early 80s. And then you had Black and Blue that came down from, from Oregon that right. made it very quickly. And it was kind of stunning because they were actually one of the first bands to sign with a major. You had Sound Barrier on MCA and, of course, you had A Quiet Riot and Motley. And I think even before Rat and, um, you know, uh, all those other bands, uh, Black and Blue, were one of the first. Yeah, I always considered them part of that kind of first wave of L.A., you know, metal, hard rock, glammy bands to come out. And the history books don't really reflect that. I mean, we always hear about, of course, Motley Crue and Rad of that first wave. But yeah, Black and Blue was right there. And although they never broke like Motley Crue or Rat, that first album, I got to tell you, is so freaking good. It is a good album. And their first demo, again, they were really heavy. Their first demo had uh, uh, the demo version of Change Around Heaven was actually on the Metal Massacre. Yeah, that's uh, right. Record. And uh, a song called Violent Kid and I'm the King. And they were, again, they were a pretty heavy band. But, you know, I think Brian Slagle, who's who's interviewed in, the, in this movie, says it best. You know, once they sign with the major labels, you know, the labels tried to market them to the MTV and, they, and to radio play. So they softened up their sound a bit and yeah. kind of honed them into more of this heavy rock pop band. But a lot of those bands were, were quite, quite heavy uh, back in the day. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, Malice was another band that were really big uh, at the time. Uh, uh, you know, they signed with Atlantic early on. And, you know, and then, of course, you can't forget, you know, Megadeth, you know, were, were based uh, in L.A., uh, you know, and, uh, um, you know, just just so many bands. Racer X was another band we covered uh, extensively that a lot of uh, uh, people neglect to, you know, recall. I mean, Racer X, again, they were packing in just as much or more people than uh, uh, Poison and Warrant. I'm mean, when, when Racer X were playing the clubs, the place was packed. You know, Lizzie Borden and other band that were, were very huge at the time. Striper were starting out there. And, uh, you know, um, they started out kind of as a Gazzari's uh, uh, right. uh, band, too, when they were Rock's regime. I mean, Striper and Metallica did a show together at uh, a small club called the uh, uh, the uh, Bruins Den or the uh, – yeah, I think the Bruins Den in Long Beach. So, you know, it was – it was a different time for sure. Yeah, man. I mean, you're mentioning all these bands, which again, all hard rock and metal, but definitely different sounds and different styles from Rat to Armored Saint to Racer X. I mean, this is a diverse group, um, which I don't know if people always think of the LA metal scene as being diverse, but, but there was diversity. Um, and kind of on another topic, one thing you get into in, in the, in the film, again, inside metal, the LA metal scene explodes too. It's on Amazon Prime. It's uh, all over the place. We'll have it linked through today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com. But one other thing you get into is the stage shows that these bands put on. And a lot of times they were bringing arena rock style stage shows in into the clubs and they put so much into these stage shows can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the better stage shows you remember or who were the i mean lizzie borden obviously wasp who, who else well who were your favorites well, um, Wasp obviously brought it because they were doing an arena rock stage show in the Troubadour. And the Troubadour is like about a 400-seat club, although they would stuff like 700 people in. And the first time Wasp played, again, they had the seats. And it, it wasn't just chairs and tables in the front. They were like those 
rows of tables that go all the way to the stage. And so you're kind of locked in there. You can't move. And then you have Blackie Lawless, you know, grinding up raw meat and throwing it at the, at the people. They had nowhere to duck or cover because they're sitting down eating dinner, you know, and getting nailed. And it was, uh, you know, they, I mean, the fire was, I mean, no, no, put it this way. No, I mean, back then, nobody knew. I mean, it was, you know, long before the whole Great White Fire. And back then, pretty much almost anything went because, I mean, yeah. Wasp used to you, you, bring gunpowder and explosives. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a story in there about Wasp having uh rats and and on live rats on the stage this is in the documentary guys can you why don't you tell tell us a little bit about what that story is all about and the meat grinder yeah we talked to uh, both chris holmes and and uh, uh randy piper i believe it was randy piper that told the rat story as they were they had uh, you know they were just thinking of anything to get the crowd going and just to like you know build this total raunchy horror kind of show and they had a meat grinder as i said and they had a cage of rats and apparently they would like blackie would hold the rat up and he said the way it looked it looked like he put it right in the meat grinder but it was actually he was putting it back in the cage but people couldn't tell and everyone was saying that he was grinding up the rats and then the meat would just shoot out you know right. and uh, <laughs> people thought it, it was just hamburger meat but you know it was a big thing and that you know that was you know of course wasp was notorious you know they learned from obviously kiss and alice cooper uh probably more so on alice cooper with the rat thing but you know that obviously gained them a lot of uh notoriety and then uh uh, Randy said that all the rats got loose in the troubadour, and then there was always these reports that people would be at the troubadour like weeks later and see rats running around and stuff. So, you know, uh, but yeah, they they did a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, that sign, I mean, you could just feel the heat from the fire on them when they lit up that big sign. I mean, it, it was insane that the shows that used right. to go on. They always put on a great show. Um, you know, um, there wasn't, uh, you know, obviously, you know, when you got the latter 80s, you know, you know, say what you will about Poison. I was never a, a Poison fan, but they put on, you know, uh, quite a big show when they did some of the bigger shows out there. Lizzie Borden, as you mentioned, always put on a great show. Um you know, that was really when the whole uh, – you had the mix of the, the denim and leather. All these bands kind of started out with that look like Rat and Motley. They had, you know, the leather look. And then it slowly – you know, I, and I think Def Leppard had a lot of influence when they were on MTV. Right. All the colorful, more glammy kind of closing. Then you saw Rat kind of dressed like that. And I think, you know, Steven even mentioned he was a real big fan at the time of Duran Duran and Adam Ant, the way – the visual aspect of the right, way yeah, they – he says that in the movie. Yeah. yeah, and that started getting kind of incorporated into that. So a lot of the uh, – it was a weird time because then a lot of the purists, the metal purists were, ah, this isn't metal. They're, you know, they're, you know, so not just was their music getting lighter, but their stage show was getting a little bit more colorful and glammy. So I think a lot of bands fell, fell uh, trapped to that. Uh, even the heavier bands were, were kind of doing that, doing the – everyone was doing the big hair from, you know, Lizzie Bourne to the Racer X's to even Megadeth, you know, and were, were, had kind of the big hair at, at one point. So uh, – um, you know, that look, you know, again, that really carried on more into the latter 80s. But you kind of saw the transition starting at this time. But another thing I want to mention, Marcus, is, is this was a period where it really introduced 
the females, the female fronted metal bands, which yeah. was very rare. I mean, before that, you had the Runaways. Um, you had, uh, you know, we, we talked to the, the Pandoras. We talked to a bitch. Yeah. Uh, we talked to Ann Bolin of Hellion, uh, Betsy of bitch. And, um, you know, before that there was another band called the orchids who were around, around the time that, you know, they played the Starwood, but that was it. They were more poppy, but here you had Betsy bitch, who was this clad S and M leather you know, chick on stage. And that was the first time you've ever saw that, not just in, in LA, but really anywhere of a female coming out doing that. And totally. Anne Boleyn had this very DOS-esque type, type of voice. And, you know, uh, she didn't sound like a typical chick singer. So, you know, that's another thing we got to give credit to that, you know, um, when they first started, people, it was like, this is a man's game, man. No right. women allowed. But, you know, they really opened up a lot of doors for a lot of the female bands that, uh, especially the metal bands and the female fronted metal bands. So, uh, want to give props to them. Oh, absolutely. And of course, people like Gina Zamparelli, who was, you know, one of the first, uh, women to come out as a promoter. Again, it was always a, a man's game, especially when it came to a uh, hard rock and metal, uh, doing promotions. Right. And, uh, so, um, that's another topic we get into as well. Yeah. It's a great documentary and I highly recommend everyone check this out. Um, what, one, one other thing I would really have to give you props for putting out there, which I think is, is such an important point. And it's, you know, the history books have been written uh, a certain way. And I, I really think the way they've been written is, is wrong. And it's, and you, you shed light on the truth uh, of this myth in your documentary and the myth to, to me, and I've always believed that it's a myth is that one day MTV played, Smells Like Teen Spirit and all the hard rock bands uh, out of L.A. and that genre, you know, died. And and I think it's great that you have Don Dockin and Stephen Piercy and other people talking about how grunge didn't kill this scene. The, this, this maybe the scene killed itself. Maybe it was the oversaturation. Maybe it was the the, the business uh, record companies just putting too much of it down our throats that we needed something else. And, and maybe it was just you know the uh, the uniqueness and the excitement was lost, and another thing kind of came in and and took our excitement away from the LA metal scene. What is your personal thoughts on grunge killing the LA metal scene? Well, yeah, what, what they state is absolutely true. I think Mike Stone, who was, who was in Eden at the time, of course, he la later joined Queensryche as a guitar player, but the guy, I actually managed him with Eden. He's an um, unbelievable singer. Right. I think he touched on that. How, uh, uh, And, of course, Stephen Piercy uh, uh, talked about that, too. We didn't want to get too much into the whole grunge thing because that happened a little bit later. We tried to keep it at uh, 86, but it was something that was was starting. And, and the, the whole thing, what they talk about, it became this cookie-cutter mentality yeah, uh, after yeah. a while. Once the band started getting signed, you know, in the beginning it was very very organic. Uh, you know, even Motley Rat and all those bands, they didn't have anyone to look up to except, you know, maybe the British bands or, or Van Halen, but they were kind of doing their own kind of thing. Uh, and then everybody MTV happened. The visuals came out. Everyone in the late, late later eighties, you know, 88, 89, boom, they were coming at 
L.A. They all looked the same. They all dressed the same. They all sounded the same. And that, honestly, it got ridiculous. It got stupid. Not to say there there weren't good bands, right? But just it was a you know it was a cookie cutter mentality. And at that point, a lot of the labels were just signing up crap. And you know, some good, some bad. Some of them were just generic. And uh, I think people saw right through it. So. There is definitely some some truth about it, but it really was the the bands that really kind of killed the scene. It was a, and I think that happens with anything, whether it be disco or or, or whatever. There's an, a a point of oversaturation, or where it becomes silly. You know, when Rick Dees is doing the disco duck, it's like, all right, <laughs> it's right. time to officially kill disco now. You know, so and I think that happens with, with any genre punk. I mean, punk killed itself in the same way. Punk was supposed to be this anarchist underground thing. We hate commercial anti-rock stars. And then you had Billy Idol and Adam Ant and The Clash, you know, becoming these huge pop sensations on MTV, you know, and uh, becoming what they supposedly despise, these arena gigantic bands, you know, so you know, kind of, kind of the same thing, you know, and I think that's, that's really what happened. Uh, and I think a lot of the metal bands after the nineties hit, you, you heard it, they were trying to get more grunge or more gritty and, and this and that, and it didn't work for a lot of them. And right. I think, uh, you know, you can't blame grunge. You could blame, I mean, the, the way the industry did it, it was just like, boom, right there. And it was just this, uh, this overturning and and not just the labels, but everything, press, all these people, you never got the thing about heavy metal, no matter how popular the bands were, Rat, Motley and whatever, they never got the exposure that either the punk or the grunge bands did. Right. And everyone says how grunge and all that was underground. When Nirvana hit, Pearl Jam hit, they were all over Rolling Stone, all the magazines, all the radio stations, constantly playing them on alternative stations, rock stations, major oversaturation. Rad and Motley, they never got that. They still hate – people still kind of hated that metal. You had the PMRC, which was a huge thing come out of this. You know, It was still an anti-metal thing, and it was really more underground that, that really brought it up. It was it, – you know, people say that MTV broke metal, and I say no. Metal broke MTV. You right. know, there were bands, you know, Metallica did three albums selling triple platinum, you know, uh, with Master of Puppets, or at least double platinum at the yeah, time. With no music videos. Absolutely. So it was metal that helped MTV. It wasn't, you know, MTV. Metal would have survived without MTV. Uh, you know, might not have been to the that level, that commercial level, but it absolutely would have survived. I mean, look at Van Halen and all these bands survived, you know, forever without MTV. I don't think the new wave scene or the grunge scene would have survived so much with without MTV metal would have. So, you know, that I, I will say, but as far as what, what you're saying is it, it is absolutely true that the bands killed it themselves. It was really the fault of the oversaturation and the bands were willing to not take any chances. The labels were really unwilling to take chances. 
Um, you know, it's funny because it, the labels really had a lot to do with it, Mark. I mean, yeah, the I, I think they they were so responsible for it because I remember I was probably like you know eighteen, nineteen at the time, and that's when Warrant came out. And I, I like Warrant now, but when Warrant came out, I was kind of like, eh, this has been done before. You know, yeah. Firehouse. I was like, this is boring. This has been done before. And I, as a consumer of this stuff, started looking elsewhere. Suddenly, I was like, oh, living color what's this you know alice in chains what's this even stuff like fishbone i was getting into at that point because i had grown not tired of motley crew and and rat but i had grown tired of of the the their offspring what they had spawned you know like the firehouse and and warren again nowadays I, i've gone back and now i appreciate warren but um at the time i i was not ready to listen to them, you know, and, uh, I think, I think it's the labels just really oversaturated things. Absolutely. And you know, Mark, I was the same way. I mean, when the sound garden, especially when the loud, loud love album came out, I oh, mean, yeah. I just was all over that. I saw them at the clubs, uh, at the whiskey and at uh, a place called Hollywood live. I saw them at Jezebel's open for prong and Voivod. And they, I mean, they were just amazing. And uh, so many of those bands, uh, Alice in Chains, as you say, um, yeah, I mean, it was something definitely fresh and uh, exciting. So um, yeah, but I, I forgot the point that you were so about the labels, but yeah. the labels are such hypocrites, these A&R guys, because they were the ones telling these bands to sound like this, look like this. This is what sells. This is what's on MTV. And then, boom, it was like overnight, the labels were saying, no, this, we're, so, we're all about grunge. It's the grunge is happening. All these glam bands, that's, uh, that's not real. That's, not, that's all this and that. It's like, dude, you were the guys telling these bands how to look. Yeah, how good to point. Sound. You know, and so, yeah, the labels were, I mean, of course, it's a business to them. So they're going to, well, you know, I mean, Jamie, uh, uh, um, Janie Lane talks about, you know, how one day he was at the, the, the record company, saw the big warrant poster behind the president's uh, desk. That's and then right. the next day it was like Alice in Chains or something like that. And, right. right. Uh, and, but that's how it was. It was kind of like, forget this totally. We're on to this now. Yeah. And that's what I thought was stupid. It was just kind of like, okay, this is dead. And it was not just the labels, but the press and everything. It's like, okay, we're going to kill it. But the fact is, a lot of these bands lived on. And then you even had bands in the 90s. You know, a perfect example is is Jackal. When they came out, everyone thought they were a joke. And, and I thought that was great because yeah. that was so refreshing after hearing Pearl Jam just saturated all over the place. Nirvana saturated. Here comes a band that's got that Southern rock, that old, you know, like Black Oak, Arkansas meets Blackfoot meets Motorhead attitude. Yeah. And just ripping it up. And it's like, yes, thank God, you know, long hair, just rock, dirty you know, and, and, uh, you know, so, and you know what, that album went, I, I know at least platinum, maybe double platinum. So the fans were still there. I mean, all these places, everyone says that the nineties were dead. I lived in LA in the nineties and all through the mid to late nineties, you know, you had the cat house in the early nineties, the Thunderdome, uh, exposure 54, all these clubs still in the nineties. So it was still like, Grunge was going on and it was powerful, but metal was still big. But I think everyone just tried to like, you know, 
put it down. And then, yeah. you know, she had thrash metal. That was, that was always huge. You know, it never died. So yeah, right. you're, you're absolutely right, Mark. So the third movie that I'm told is coming, it's when, when is the third movie coming next year? Well, we're, we're, yeah, we're editing it now. It's uh, called Rise of L.A. Thrash Metal. And basically nice. when, we, when, when we did this, all the interviews were, con- were conducted about uh, two, two and a half, maybe three years ago now. Yeah. Um, and they were all for – we just did an onslaught of interviews. And then we kind of decided, uh, Joe and Carl and I, let's cut it up into – these three movies, you know, because, uh, we did that in the time frame, And then we, uh, we wanted to do something on the LA thrash scene because I particularly think a lot that a lot of the LA thrash bands, again, which was a huge movement was totally underlooked because the mm-hmm. glam rock and the hair metal, as they call it, hair metal became so popular. And then of course, Metallica moved to the Bay area and then the thrash scene, everything was concentrated on the Bay area. And then you had a lot of great bands, you know, Testament and Exodus and death angel coming out of there. So it was something that was really ignored. And I thought it was important for us to tell the real story. Uh, so we touch on, of course, Metallica, Megadeth Slayer, of course. And, uh, we also talk about, um, you know, agent steel, dark angel, uh, suicidal tendencies, of course, yes. Hyrax, uh, Overkill LA, who, who are also in this, uh, the uh, LA metal scene explodes. Yes. Overkill LA were, were um, you know, uh, I before Overkill New Jersey, and they were on, I, I believe, the second Metal Massacre record, and they were a pretty big punk metal band. And uh, uh, so we get into all these, I even interviewed, we used some segments for the Weasels, who I thought were really the first crossover a punk metal band that I saw long before Suicidal. We're talking really? se- early 70s. I mean, they used to play with ACDC at the Whiskey, ACDC and Van Halen, and they they had a song. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's funny. They, they would have been banned now or just been thrown in jail or whatever, but the song was called Beat Her With a Rake. Right. Beat Her With a Rake and Make Her Pay For Her Mistake. And uh, we, we covered that in the first movie as well, but they were really, I think, the first punk metal band that really kind of had that crossover. So, you know, we, we get into a lot of those bands and uh i think it's important to touch on because these bands were kind of they were all banned from hollywood so they were playing as i mentioned a lot of the orange county clubs or even like the balboa theater which was in watts which is like i guess the equivalent of harlem and and you know and just these ghetto areas uh, uh long beach fenders ballroom the olympic auditorium uh where a lot of the punk bands played so these thrash bands were playing there and uh, they were getting, you know, thousands of people in these venues, but it was just kind of overlooked. So, again, I, I wanted to really give props to a lot of these bands that were overlooked, whether it be bands from the 70s like a Legs Diamond or, or even London, who've been around forever, uh, to the thrash bands, you know, uh, you know, Agent Steel and, and you know, suicide, although suicidal yeah. kind of make of a dark angel and uh you know, a lot of these bands that really kind of were the forefront of, of thrashing and just as important as the uh, Bay Area metal scene. But just so the Bay Area people don't get pissed off, <laughs> we are doing our 
fourth title, which I've already finished all the interviews for, is wow. going to be on the Bay Area metal scene okay. inside of the Bay Area. And that's going to cover the whole Bay Area thrash scene, as well as a lot of the other bands from the Bay Area. People forgot that there were a lot of great, you know, just regular rock bands and even glam bands like Vane, Davey Vane. Right. You know, of course, Jet Boy was from there, a Lost Rocket, and, uh, you know, a lot of just more mainstream kind of bands head on. Uh, so uh, we, we kind of mix it up. And, and, and that's going to be a real good one, too, because cool. that, they talk a lot about how the, uh, you know, the, the thrash and the glam kind of melded together in, in the Bay Area, which was a whole separate scene than L.A. So it's a, it's exciting. I, I love working on this. It's a it's a, it's a lot of fun. And it's just really, you know, it's a blast for the from the past. And it's great interviewing these bands and talking for hours with these guys and sharing old stories. And, uh, you know, if I, I wish I could share some of the stories that when the cameras weren't rolling, yeah, there <laughs> there's, you go. there's some great stuff, but yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. Cool. Well, Bob, again, thanks for doing this great movie. The LA metal scene explodes. It's uh, inside metal. Do we call it part two? Is that? Yeah, you, it's yeah, it's a second title, so right. it would be a part two. But it, so people do know it is a two part. Uh, DVD and movie. If you if you do it digitally, a lot of people just saw the first one, you know, volume one, and they said, "Dude, you left out so many bands and this and that." Like, well, watch volume two as well. Right, right. You'll see. So it, both of them are two volume. It looks like the rise of LA thrash metal, as well as the San Francisco one, will be two volume as well. I know it's confusing, and it wasn't intentional. We just had so much material. And, you know, Warren, who's been very supportive, the executive producer, he's, you know, let us do it, you know, our way. Uh, And he said, uh, you know what, dude, just make it two volumes. So rather than leaving stuff out and making it not flow, we decided, yeah, it it makes sense. Let's do two volumes. Cool. Right on. Well, it's always great talking with you. And thanks for coming back and uh, checking in with us on Talking Metal. When when the next volume comes out or the next uh, episode or DVD three, you know, the thrash metal one, please come back and we'll talk again. I would love to. I appreciate all your support, Mark. Thank you. Cool. Keep in touch, Bob. You got it, man. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Oh